Most people have prayed at some point in their lives. Maybe because we we find ourselves uh, in danger or feeling desperate, maybe helpless, maybe hopeless. And it's true even for people who don't have a personal relationship with God. I think it's something that human beings share in common with one another because we have all been created in God's image. Of course, something else is true. We stop praying. Maybe something else we share in common as human beings. So when we don't see the answer we hope for in the time we hope for it, we stop. Why keep at it? Why be persistent with something that doesn't seem to be delivering the way we thought or hoped it might? And my guess is that anyone who has prayed knows the feeling. You see, people who pray always wrestle with God's silence. It's just a true thing. People who pray wrestle with God's silence. Now, we've been looking at the conversations that Jesus had as he traveled between Galilee and and, and Jerusalem and Samaria. And Jesus, interestingly enough, in just this five-day period, Jesus told two stories about prayer. The only thing he repeated and talked about twice, so he's obviously raising the importance of this. And both stories had to do with staying at it. If you were with us a few weeks ago, uh, you'll remember that the first story uh, was in Luke chapter 11. And it was a, a very short story about a friend who asked a neighbor for bread in the middle of the night to serve guests who had arrived. And though inconvenient, the neighbor responds with a generous hospitality. Uh, that's what friends and neighbors do. And, and he began to shape something about prayer that when we have nothing to offer in a particular situation and we don't find that we have the resources to, to confront something, we turn to God with shameless audacity. Remember that? A shameless audacity. Prayer is the posture of shameless audacity before God. We come to God because we need God. And we hope and we trust that he will respond because he is generous and good. Well, he tells a second story. And we're going to look at that story this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 18. And this story is a very unique story. It revolves around a widow and an unjust judge. And and once again, as we've been seeing throughout all of these stories, we notice that Jesus, when when Jesus carried on conversations about spiritual realities, he rarely used the language of religious insiders. He didn't speak church speak. He used the language of everyday people and everyday situations that, that people would relate to. It was intended to awaken their imagination. So let's jump into this story. Verse one, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. This was one of those rare moments where Jesus provided his disciples with the meaning of the parable before he told the story. He was telling the story so that they would pray and and not give up. Now, it wasn't common for Jesus. 
But there is a very good reason. For those of you who have been tracking with us, the, the, the timing of this is critical to understanding parts of these parables. Jesus was just a matter of days away from reaching Jerusalem and all the events would begin to unfold and he knew what was ahead of him. The intensity of opposition towards him was growing and over the next week or so he would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be crucified. His followers would then have to navigate his death, then his resurrection, then his leaving again to return to his father. A ton of stuff was going to happen in a very short amount of time. Uh, the disciples couldn't have anticipated all that was going to begin to swirl. And once Jesus was gone, life for his followers would not get easier, it would get tougher. And the struggle and the suffering would remain until he returned in the future. And those who followed Jesus, they, they hadn't come to grips with that reality. I, I, with that reality. I'm not sure they could have. But they, but they hadn't come to grips with that reality, just like many of us haven't come to grips with that reality. You see, following Jesus in Jesus' absence requires what I'm going to call a renovation of imagination. And that'll become more clear over the next few moments. You see, following Jesus in, in these moments of silence and, and Jesus' absence Something is needed to invite us into a bigger story than we can see. A story we have to imagine. Uh, one writer described it like this. The church is realizing today there is an awareness of God sleeping in the basement of the postmodern imagination and they have to awaken it. The arts can do this. I love this next phrase. All beauty is subversive. It flies under the radar of people's critical filters and it points them to God. As a friend of mine says, when the front door of the intellect is shut, the back door of the imagination is open. And our neglect of the power of beauty and the arts helps explains why many people have lost interest in the church. Our coming back to the arts will help renew that imagination. Story is art. And Jesus told story to awaken imagination. If you have been reading along, uh, we didn't cover it in Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus talked at length about something called the kingdom of God. And if you've ever read the stories of Jesus, he sometimes used dramatic, metaphoric, apocalyptic language to stir imagination. You read the stories and your head kinds of, it just kind of shakes at, at how dramatic and apocalyptic the language is. And it was intended to awaken people to the unseen battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God that was raging on earth. Uh, there wasn't everyday language to grab, and so they grabbed this bigger-than-life apocalyptic language to describe it. It was to awaken followers of Jesus who otherwise might sleepwalk through life on earth. It's dulled, uh, unaware, unattentive to this massive thing that was going on, and it was intended to awaken people to the wonders of what God is doing all around us right now today. 
Well, one of the ways that you and I participate in the unfolding kingdom of God is what Jesus calls persistent prayer. To use Jesus' words, prayer that never gives up. A prayer that is firmly anchored to the confidence that God is bringing about his purposes on earth in spite of what we see around us. So Jesus goes on with the story, verse two. In a town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. That's a descriptive phrase. The judge didn't respect God. He, he lacked any spiritual instincts. Nor did he care what people thought about him. He lacked empathy. How would you like to be standing before that judge with something that you care deeply about? That's exactly where a widow found herself. Verse 3. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now Jesus' story presupposes that the widow is in the right. No one's questioning the legitimacy of her claim. She had been wrongly taken advantage of by someone and an unnamed injustice has occurred. And there were laws to protect her. And so this widow went to the village judge seeking justice. But she was a widow. You see, in Jesus' day, important to understand some of the context, a woman didn't appear before a judge by herself unless she had no husband, no father, no brother, or no uncle to stand on her behalf. That she approached the judge was a statement that she was completely alone. And the widow was the very symbol of helplessness in a culture that had no safety nets. No power, no position, no protectors to pressure the judge on her behalf. All she had was the truth and her persistence. And so she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Her persistence would not be denied, and it finally paid off. Verse 4, for some time the judge refused. Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, at least he's self-aware, <laughs> even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This last phrase, attack me, it's translated in a couple of ways. Uh, the NIV obviously translates it, attack me. Other translations, the RSV, the NASB, translated as, uh, she will eventually wear me out. Um, the message paraphrase it is that I'll be beaten black and blue by her. Now, the Greek word is very interesting. It translates literally something like to strike someone under the eye. Today we would say, this person's going to give me a black eye. 
And, and so what it was a phrase that was describing, this person's going to damage my reputation. So the woman is so persistent, the judge grew concerned that public opinion would turn against him, so he relented. Not out of any concern for the woman, not out of concern for justice, but to protect his reputation. You see, this widow became the model in Jesus' story, the, the hero, the model of courage and persistence in asking for justice before an unjust judge and an unjust system. You know, it's no small thing, by the way, that, Jale that Jesus selected a woman to be the hero of the story. Everywhere you look in the scriptures, Jesus was a consistent champion for the rights and roles of women in a culture that didn't treat them justly. If you want to notice something fascinating, from this point forward until the time of Jesus' ascension or, or his resurrection, for sure, from this point forward, the closer Jesus got to the cross, the role of women among Jesus' disciples became the most prominent, far more than men. A woman anointed the Messiah as he, as he approached the triumphal entry. Women were faithful in standing with Jesus at the cross when all their male counterparts were hiding. Women had the foresight and the courage to follow Joseph of Arimathea as he went to Pilate to request Jesus' body and gain permission to place Jesus in a tomb. It was women who knew where Jesus was buried. Women were the first to make their way to the tomb and hear the, the announcement that, about Jesus' resurrection, and women were the first to announce the gospel of the resurrection. And here's what you discover about the, when you read the parables. The parables of Jesus were not simply these cool, wonderful, insightful stories. Jesus was speaking into the culture in subversive ways. He was, he was challenging and, and poking and, and moving into the culture in ways that was causing people to, to unthink paradigms that were unhealthy. Well, after the story, Jesus turned to his disciples. So he tells this brief little story, stops, he turns to his disciples, and, and then he says something that you just know captured their attention. It's kind of, whoa. He, he said, listen to what the unjust judge says. In essence, Jesus is saying there is something to be learned from this unjust judge. And so he asks a couple of pointed questions. Verse 7, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He kind of peels off the story and begins to apply it to the way we, we approach God. And, and think of it like this. Here's, here's what Jesus was, was doing. The contrast, he was just kind of laying out. If a judge who doesn't respect God and doesn't care for people eventually granted justice because this widow was persistent, imagine how God, who does care for us and is deeply concerned about our well-being, imagine how God will respond to our persistent crying out to him. You see the contrast. He's, he's painting a very clear picture. Will that kind of God delay and deny justice to his own children? 
And then Jesus answered his own question in verse 8. He says, I tell you, I assure you something. Be very clear about something, Jesus says. He will see that they get justice and quickly. Now, we get snagged on that word quickly. <laughs> you see, Jesus sets the time frame for when his children would see justice in the words that follow in verse 8. He says, when the Son of Man comes. See, you will see justice when the Son of Man comes. Justice will take place in the future when Jesus returns. When Christ returns, he will set everything right. He will judge with justice. But therein lies the tension. It's the ambiguity. The indefiniteness. The mystery about Christ's return that causes waiting for justice to be so confusing. Now, think of it like this. How long has it been today, how long has it been since Jesus even spoke these words? Like over 2,000 years? Long enough to cause even the most loyal of Jesus' followers, followers to wonder, to doubt, to lose hope, and maybe to quit praying. There's a wonderful passage in 2 Peter where Peter wrote this. Above all, understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. You all keep talking about this. Nothing has changed. But they forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly. And then he says this, but do not forget something, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish. See, God's understanding of words like quickly and slowness are very different than ours today. See, they're informed not by our perspective on time, but God's perspective on time. And by the way, his slowness never reflects indifference. His slowness reflects something, patience for the sake of people. But you and I today delay. Delay is completely counter to the consumerism that's so deeply embedded in our culture, which demands everything now. A consumerism so embedded um, and so pervasive that it even bends our spiritual expectations around our immediate gratifications. But I'd like you to think differently about God's silence. You see, God's silence is a common, repeated experience among those who pray. 
It's not unique. If you are experiencing a sense that God is not being responsive to, you're experiencing the same thing we're all experiencing. People who pray are experienced in God's silence. We're seasoned in God's silence. If there's anything in the Bible like an official prayer book, it's the Psalms. Let me just read through it. I scanned quickly a number of Psalms. Psalm 10.1, why, Lord, do you stand so far off from me? Why do you hide, hide from me in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my own thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 44, awake, Lord, why are you sleeping on me? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your, fa your face and forget our misery? How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will, you, will your foe revile your name forever? Uh, Psalm 90, relent, how long will... Why, why? Why? How long? How long? How long? People who pray ask why and how long a lot. We do. But it was the language of the Psalms that inspired generations of Jews and Christians to keep on praying in and through God's silence. Just like the widow who kept coming. Um, the suffering church, the, the persecuted church across the centuries, this was one of the parables that they turned to. And they found encouragement and hope. Um, I read, uh, I hope I get his name correct, it's Al-Tayyib. He wrote this in Baghdad a millennium ago. It is said that the purpose of this parable is to clarify what is incumbent on the believers during the life of the present church as regards perseverance and persistence and heartfelt, fervent prayer in the face of suffering. The faithful pray with full confidence that if they accomplish this, if they persevere in prayer, if they pray like this, there is no doubt that God will come to them with joy, look upon their suffering, and grant them victory at the appropriate time. Dare I suggest that this is a foreign perspective to the Western church today? We don't have context for this. So, why do we keep praying? Why do we keep praying when God is silent? I'll give you two, two simple answers. First of all, we keep praying because we know who God is and what God is like. We know God to be good, generous, and faithful, and just. We know it from the scriptures. We know it from stories of countless men and women throughout history, and we even know it from our own experience. God's silence must always be framed by what we know to be true about God. It can never stand alone. In fact, the picture of the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18 is everything we know God is not. 
It's part of the starkness of the contrast. The story of an unjust judge jolts us into a needed reminder of what we know and experience God to be. He is not like the unjust judge. So rather than diminish our trust, God's silence extends our trust beyond the margins of what you and I can see and understand. God's silence reminds us that when we think or we find ourselves overly confident in God's ways, if you find your, yourself thinking, I've got this figured out, I know what God is doing. It's clear to me. If we ever find ourselves overconfident in God's ways, we're actually displaying how clueless we actually are. Because God's silence, there's so much he chooses not to tell us. And all he asks us to do is trust his character. And by design, doesn't fill in the blanks. There's a second reason, and I fear this, this is the reason that maybe is the one we most often lose sight of. Not only do we keep praying because we know God is like and, and, and what God is like and who God is, we keep praying because we understand the scope and the significance of the kingdom of God. And this is where I'm going to stretch you a little bit. We, we keep praying because we see something, we understand something. God is, God is about, I'm going to push my language a little bit. God is about something larger and far more urgent than any of our personal needs. We, we lock in, we lock down to what's right in front of us in our, in our world. And those are good things. And God is concerned about those things. But God is, is concerned about something larger and far more urgent. That's what's going on in my life. What's going on in your life. You see, God's kingdom and what God is doing and moving his, his purposes through time and history on earth, it's going on all the time, whether or not you and I see it or are aware of it. It's always moving. Even when we choose not to see it, even when we choose not to participate in it, God's kingdom ways continue to move. And Jesus, in telling stories like this, wants to, to awaken something invite us to stay aware of the bigger story that you and I are actually invited to live in. The story we're invited to be in is not just our story working out, it's something much grander. That's why what I meant when I said earlier that kingdom requires a renovation of our imagination. It requires the ability for you and I to see what we don't often see. It requires the capacity of looking at, at life circumstances that are showing up on our news feeds and, and reading about what's going on around the globe and begin to see and, and, we, and, and invite us that we are capable of, a, of a participating in something that's never going to be reported in the news. And most people don't see it. And yet God is moving. Persistence in prayer, and I'm going to repeat this, Persistence in prayer, in the realities of the ever-present injustice, oppression, and suffering that we see all around our world today. Persistent prayer in the face of all that we see 
is the only kind of prayer that is congruent with the kingdom understanding of the way God works in history. Let me say that again. Persistent prayer. In the face of all the suffering, the injustice, and the oppression we see in our world today is the only kind of prayer congruent with a kingdom perspective and how God is working in time. It, it, it lifts us above and allows us to see God moving even in the midst of the oppression, the injustice, and the suffering. And prayer is one of the ways that we participate in what God is doing. I want to read an interesting quote to you. It came from a, a book with a very interesting title. God's Peace in a Nuclear World. And the writer said this, through the scriptures, we have received a vision of God's intention to overcome all hostility, alienation, and injustice, and to bring shalom to all creation. Our calling is to be faithful to that divine revelation in that vision. The vision of God's concern for human suffering and God's future judgment against those who cause oppression and destruction must become our guiding vision if we would claim to be God's people. It's the scope and significance of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' final question in verse 8. It should jar all of us awake. If we are sleepwalking through life, this question should just shatter, jar, shake us loose from only living in our smaller world. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here's what Jesus is asking. Will he find us? Will he find us to be people who have persevered through all of it? Is that who we'll find? Uh, will he find us to be like the widow in the story who kept asking and kept asking and kept asking and kept asking? There's some uh, timely encouragement in Hebrews chapter 10. And the writer says this. Remember those earlier days after you had, after you had received the light when you endured, endured a great conflict full of suffering. It's kind of like he says, do you remember the good old days when you suffered? <laughs> Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confession or the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And then the writer leans in. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere and I love this next phrase, so that when you have done the will of God, persevering is the will of God. 
when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he was coming, will, will come and not delay. The righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in, in the one who shrinks back. And then he offers us this, this, this wonderful, winsome word of hope. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. He says, I know what's true about you. You're not among those who shrink back. You are among those who will persevere. I know that to be true of you. And so we keep praying because we know who God is and we know the significance and the seriousness of what we're involved in. So we keep at it. I use a prayer book and, and each week this prayer book provides a guiding prayer for each week. And... I end up praying it two or three times every day in the week, the particular prayer. And this week's prayer beautifully captured what a persevering kind of life looks like. So I'm going to close with it. And I'm going to add a few of my, my words along with it. So if you would pray with me, and just I'll, I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Almighty and merciful God, in your goodness, keep us from all things that hurt us. That we, Grace Church, the family of Grace Church, that we being ready both in mind and in body may accomplish with a free heart those things which belong to your purposes. May we accomplish with a free heart those things which belong to your purposes. Not fearful, but a free heart. Not cautious, but a free heart. Not self-conscious, but a free heart. Not self-protective, but a free heart. And not among those who shrink back, but faithful. In Jesus' name.